Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopez as always and today I'm here with Dr. Lauren Brandt. She is Associate Professor in the Center for Research in Animal Behavior at the University of Exeter. She is a biologist interested in the evolution of sociality. Her research asks why social relationships are formed and how they are maintained. Her work focuses on highly gregarious group living animals and she works mostly with data collected from wild or free-ranging groups. So we're going to talk about sociality today. Dr. Brent, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me, Ricardo. Okay, great. So uh, let me first ask you, because I've already talked about sociality several times on the show already, but I've, I've never asked this question. What is sociality exactly? I mean, when we're studying the sociality of a given species, what are we studying? Hmm. That's a great question. It's a really difficult question, and it, it really um, depends on where you're, where you're coming from in a lot of ways, because in, in a lot of senses, all animals, all vertebrates anyway, are social at some point in their lives, right? So social being they interact with another individual. So a very simple example, even if you're the most solitary animal on the planet, you have to come together for sex with another individual, right? So sociality occurs throughout most of, of animal life as we know it. Um, but what most researchers refer to often when they're talking about sociality um, are levels beyond that. So we're often talking about animals who live in groups. Sometimes those groups are stable, sometimes they're not. Uh, so being social is to be an animal that lives with others, um, at least some of the time. Uh, but sociality to some people can then mean more than that, more than just grouping together, aggregations, and actually forming relationships with others in those groups. So it's, it's a complicated answer. Basically, it depends who you're talking to, what they mean when they talk about sociality. Um, but in essence, if you had to boil it down, it is really simply individuals interacting with others. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about sociality in evolutionary biology, for example, we are focusing mostly on animals. Right. Okay. So um, yeah. Often, yeah, often there are people who study social behavior in, in plants, um, uh, yeah, in fungus, in bacteria, but most of the time, most people are talking about, um, yeah, animalia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and when we uh, when we're talking about the evolution of sociality, is there a particular point in evolutionary history where it appears, or is that not the right way of thinking about it? Yeah, well, where it appears, it again comes back down to the, what you're thinking about when you're thinking about sociality. If if you're thinking about uh, sympatric. Uh, mutualistic relationships between, you know, an organism and a mitochondria, and then, then we can think about sociality going very, very, very far back in our evolutionary history. And in fact, being at that foundation of multicellular organisms. Uh, so it's really, it depends on what you mean when you refer to uh, sociality. But yeah, you could definitely make the case that it, that it goes back to the founding, founding uh, fruits of, of multicellularity. Mm -hmm. And what are the animals you study the most? I study mammals, 
for the most part. Um, in particular, I have a specialization in primates, so I've spent most of my time personally in the field uh, watching non-human primates, um, but in general work on mammals. Mm -hmm. And what are the aspects of their sociality you focus the most on? I focus the most um, on relationships between individuals um, mm -hmm. and also the, the structure and characteristics of their social networks as a whole. So for group living animals, I tend to study not just mammals, but mammals that live in groups, uh, what the structure of their society looks like structure being the patterning of uh, the emergent properties that emerge from the patterning of, of interactions between individuals in a group. Yeah, uh, so uh, let me ask you, the sociality of a given species, is it uh, all part of their evolved repertoire or does it include behaviors that are learned both? Or? Um. It's for the most part, I mean, I never like to really divide these things down because it's so impossible for us to know what is um, something that, that is instinctual, let's, let's say, just to use an easy word here, uh, and, and whether it's learned, it's really difficult for us to, to parse those a lot of the time. So it's not something that I even spend very much time thinking about uh, because a lot of the behaviors we look at uh, have been correlated with fitness benefits so there are things that we think of as being adaptive um, and, and therefore, yeah, most likely evolved and yeah, are not learned in that sense. Mm -hmm. It's uh, kind of a tricky one. Learning is not something I spend a huge amount of time thinking about, which is maybe the answer, in fact, to your question. <laughs> yeah. And is there individual variation in how animals establish social relations? Absolutely, yeah. Every uh, animal network that we've looked at, there's individual variation in terms of not only the basic tendencies for animals to act in certain ways, um, but also in the relationships that they form. So any animal social network you look at is highly what we call differentiated. There's plenty of structure there. It's not that every individual is behaving the same way as all others. It's not that they have an equal relationship with all other members of their group. It's, it's emphatically the opposite of that. They have some relationships that are of one quality and characteristic with some members of their group, relationships with other members of their group that look very different in terms of quality, quantity, uh, and other individuals in their group that you might even say that they don't have a relationship with at all beyond sharing group membership because these are individuals who they, they don't interact with. Um, so it's a very rich web of, of differentiation. Mm -hmm. Is this related in any way to personality traits? Um, it, yeah, it, it is. I, I, personality is a word I, I struggle with a little bit as, as a scientist, but it certainly relates to um, individual differences that appear to have some um, evidence that they're trait-like. So things that are consistent within an individual in the same context, this individual will behave in a very similar way to how they behave another time in a very similar context. Um, and there, there's some genetic basis to that. It's repeatable within an individual. Uh, so there are certain tendencies that individuals have that you, you might wish to call personalities, but you might wish to simply call them 
traits, individual-based tendencies. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, uh, and what is social complexity? Because when we compare different species, we sometimes say that uh, the sociality of one of them is more complex than the other, or their social organization. So, what are what do we mean by that? That's that is a great question, and it's um, certainly a term that gets bandied about the word mm -hmm. complexity um, and there are now currently um, debates people working towards um, a more um, empirical objective de definition of, of complexity and and what does that what does that mean uh, so a lot of these debates are centered around um, things like predictability right so how predictable is your environment, uh, if you were to imagine you're opening a door, do you know exactly who's behind that door and what they're doing? Is it sort of a free flow you have no information about a priori? The situation where you have little information might be considered a more complex social situation. Certainly you could make the argument that, that in terms of cognitive load, that's a more complex situation to be faced with. Uh, and we can see that type of situation happening in some animal societies more than in others. Uh, so say if you're a, what we call a fission-fusion um, animal society where you live in a group, but in any given moment, you're only with you know, a certain component of that group, the rest of the group, or who knows where, um, then you, you turn a corner and you might encounter a certain cluster of the rest of your group or not that might be more complicated than than an animal society where everybody's always together. So no matter what, you know exactly who you're with when you're with them. Um, so a lot of a lot of the debates are centered around exactly this predictability, really, of your social world. And that also means predictability in terms of pairwise relationships. Uh, how predictable is the quality of our relationship between uh, two pairs? Is it is it changing all the time? Is it malleable? Uh, is it volatile or is this quite a stable thing so, so you know exactly what's going on? Um, quantifying that is another issue and yet people are putting in a lot of hard work to be able to do that. But it is very much new and very much a, a kind of growing area of, of research and inquiry. Mm -hmm. So when different animal groups establish different sorts of societies, does it depend at least in part on the ecological conditions they live in? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. So even if we just look very simply at animals that live in groups versus animals that don't, um, most evidence points to this being down to predation pressure, um, potentially also down to the ability to find food, so obtaining information off your group members, making finding food easier than if you live on your own. Um, so these are all ecological pressures at the foundation of, of group living, at very least. Mm -hmm. And is a thing like social connection related to longevity? I mean, is it the case that animals who have more and better social connections tend to live more? Does it depend on the species? Um, most evidence so far points to, and, and there's a caveat here, most, most mm -hmm. studies have looked in, in group living 
mammals for the most yeah. part. So, so mammals you would perhaps expect to find a relationship between sociality and fitness. Um, but in most cases, there are a few exceptions, but in most cases when we have looked, yeah, we have found a relationship between um, sociality and fitness in the flavor of individuals who are better connected within their group, within their population, um, who have more social relationships, stronger social relationships with others, more stable social relationships with others, uh, more babies, so they have greater reproductive output, uh, and live longer. So in the rhesus macaque monkeys that I study, for example, if you are a female, adult female rhesus macaque and you have very strong, stable relationships to other adult females. Or if you have a large number of what we call weak relationships, so if you're a person, you might think of these as acquaintances, with people you know a little bit, you spend a bit of time with them. Um, both of those situations, those females uh, are living longer than their more isolated counterparts in their group. And it's, it's on the order of, um, if you ask if they live from one year to the next, the kind of boost from being socially integrated um, is on the order of something like 10%. Mm -hmm. So uh, the kinds of social networks that animals establish, do they depend at least in part on evolved mechanisms like reciprocal altruism and kin selection? Yes, so um, this is really important. Kin selection, a lot of animals when they live in groups, live with relatives, not necessarily only relatives, but they, they tend to often live with relatives. Uh, and when you have groups where you have an option, do I interact with a relative versus not in a, in a pro-social way, in a cooperative or affiliative way, um, there's often what we call kin bias. So individuals prefer to interact with, uh, prefer being very loosely defined here, but the patterning of behavior is that they're, they're, they direct affiliation towards their relatives more than their non-relatives. It's not that they don't interact with non-relatives, they absolutely do. Um, but the costs and benefits of those two choices are actually still things that we're looking at in detail in my group um, and others are looking at in, in other social systems because it hasn't been fully uh, worked out. We assume that you get fitness benefits um, direct and indirect from interacting. Uh, with your kin in a pro-social way. And of course, with non-kin, um, that equation is different. Uh, and so the question is very much still out there. Well, then why? Why would you form these cooperative interactions with non-kin? One answer, as you suggested, is potentially reciprocal altruism, mm -hmm. um, that you interact with these non-related individuals, you invest in them, and they invest back. So you get a payback on your investment. Evidence for that um, in non-captive settings is debated. It's kind of all over the place. There's some evidence for it. There's some evidence, well, there's an absence of evidence for it in some systems. Um, and so there, and there are other mechanisms that um, haven't received as much attention, but might also be playing a role, um, things like mutualism for example, uh, but people are starting to, well, not starting to, people have looked at these in the past. They just haven't had quite as much attention, but um, more attention is being turned towards them. Uh, and so I think probably in the next 10 years or so, we'll have a better understanding of when reciprocal altruism 
between non-kin is operating uh, when it's not, uh, and what other mechanisms are, are explaining um, these behaviors that we see, these interactions that we see when it's not reciprocal altruism. Mm -hmm. Would you also include group selection here? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. I, I, I would not. Um, it depends what you mean by group selection. The very strict old school definition of group selection, I would, I would say no. Uh, group selection where I am individually, personally benefiting because my group is doing better so then I benefit, sure. Yeah, <laughs> um, but then you can measure that at the level of the individual. So I don't necessarily think that um, you necessarily need to evoke group selection. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, what are indirect connections? Indirect connections are what some people refer to when they're studying social networks um, as a level of, of structure in the network. So I'm an individual, I can interact with others directly. Those are my direct connections, my partners who I physically interact with. Um, and then indirect connections are one step removed from that. So the next level over, they're basically, I am indirectly connect, connected to my network through the partners of my partners. Uh, and they are connected to the partners of their partners of their partners and so on. And if you step all the way back, you eventually get to your entire network. Lots of networks are structured differently. It may take many steps for me to eventually be connected to everyone. It may take very few steps. In fact, I might be directly connected to everyone. There's a lot of variability there. Um, that's, that's what it refers to. It's a meso-structural level of networks um, whereby it represents my connections to others via the connections of my direct partners. We refer to it really simply as friend of a friend uh, in human colloquial terms, but there are many other flavors of it, but that's the easiest way for us to think about it. It's the way we think about it in our own lives in quite a kind of regular, yeah, daily basis. Mm -hmm. And since you mentioned friends, can we talk about friendships in other species apart from humans? Yeah, definitely. I love talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I mean, how important are friendships in the case of other animal species? How important friendship is? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In, in okay. other animal yeah. species, yeah. Yeah, um, so to talk about that, um, we have to first kind of clarify what we might mean uh, when referring to friendship in, in other species. Um, just like how you know I'm a bit careful with the term personality, we might also want to be a bit careful with the term friendship. But uh, of course, as long as you define everything, then it's a bit of a semantic argument whether that's okay or not. Uh, so we do need to start with that definition. Uh, and to me, the definition of a friend is, is an individual with whom you repeatedly engage in pro-social, positive, you know, cooperative, whatever word you want to use for that kind of flavor of behavior. Um, you engage in those types of behaviors with them regularly, so on a repeated basis, and it's reciprocal. They reciprocate those types of, of engagements. Um, 
they can be kin. Doesn't matter to me if you're your kin or not, and those relationships are therefore potentially explained by kin selection. Um, the key though is that they're non-sexual relationships. So these are platonic, and again, human terms, um, repeated reciprocal uh, relationships that are reasonably stable over over time. And in other animals, we see just that. We see pairs of individuals who repeatedly interact with each other. Uh, so a pair of females or a pair of males, for example, who repeatedly engage in affiliative or cooperative behaviors uh, over time, and, and this is reciprocated between, between the partners. Um, and if we go back to your question about fitness, these types of relationships in some systems, so in the rhesus macaques um, that I study, for example, but also in uh, some species of baboon, these pairwise strong, stable relationships have been associated with living longer. So females that have stronger, more stable relationships than some other members of their group um, have better survival outcomes or living longer lives. Um, and that's, it's interesting because it does recapitulate what's been shown in people to people that are better integrated in their networks, have stronger social relationships, have better survival outcomes. Mm -hmm. Is sociality related to prolonged life after reproduction and how it evolved? Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, so there are lots of theories about this, uh, and I've been involved in a little bit of work regarding uh, life history patterns and their intersection with, with sociality. In particular, uh, I used to work on a project um, about menopause and killer whales, um, and there are two hypotheses to explain prolonged um, life after reproduction, which to start with we see in humans, of course, um, but we do also uh, have evidence that this occurs in some populations of killer whales uh, and some other species of toothed whales, so beluga, narwhal, pilot whale. Um, the killer whales have been studied outside of humans. The killer whales have been studied in most detail for this. Um, but either way, there are two hypotheses that uh, apply to both, whether human or uh, whale. And these are the grandmother hypothesis um, and the reproductive conflict hypothesis, both of which at their heart, you can even tell from what their names have sociality in them. right? Um, and they're not mutually exclusive hypotheses, right? Both potentially are, are acting uh, on life history evolution. Uh, one involves investment from your grandmother and her ability to invest more in her grand offspring when she's no longer having offspring of her own uh, and gaining uh, fitness benefits in doing so. And the other is about those decisions. Again, decisions very loosely defined. Um, Decisions about reproduction, which we would frame as conflict, so the reproductive conflict hypothesis, versus cooperation, which you would simply frame as not reproducing. If you live in a group, every individual you add to the group is a competitor if they're limited resources. That's a mouth to feed. Right? So if you one way you can help your daughter, your, your grand offspring, is yourself ceasing reproduction. So you're not adding mouths to feed. The mouths that are already there, that are your relatives, that you're getting indirect fitness benefits from, um, are potentially doing better. 
So in a way, they're both about helping. They're both about helping your relatives. It's all it's all socially construed, uh, and potentially both um, might be going on in in all of these systems, whether you're a killer whale, a beluga, um, or a human. Mm -hmm. So uh, does this does not occur in other primate species. No, there's no evidence uh, for prolonged post-reproductive life in primates outside of humans. Um, people sometimes talk about, you know, cases where this occurs of some captive chimp or some captive monkey somewhere has ceased reproducing and it lives a very long time. But the key, of course, is we're talking about an, an evolved process. And so the, the importance there is that this needs to occur in the wild and it needs to be a, a species level phenomenon or, or a trait. So all individuals need to undergo this. It can't just be a one-off, an anecdote, <laughs> a few cases here or there, particularly when those are cases where these animals' lives have been prolonged through medical care because they're in captivity from a very nice diet because they're in captivity, for example. Um, so it can happen, but I would argue that what's happening in those cases is yes, reproduction is, has ceased because the reproductive organs are senescing, their function has declined. But if you looked at the liver or the heart or the lungs of that individual, they would also not be functioning very well, right? This is an animal that's senescing, it's dying, it's very old. Prolonged post-reproductive life, what we're talking about is a female whose sole fun reproductive functionality has solely stopped, but their heart, their liver, their lungs are all functioning perfectly fine, right? They're not overall senescing. There's been a decoupling um, between the rate of senescence in the reproductive system and all other organ systems. That's menopause. The other case is, is simply aging, which is very different. Mm -hmm. Right. So at a certain point there, you mentioned the fact that you study rhesus macaques and back in 2012, you co-authored a paper where uh, rhesus macaques responded to a group member that died of a fatal attack. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, um, that was a, a strange thing that happened. And the kind of history behind it is uh, I had two research assistants working at my long term field site. And they were very well trained in a single social group. So they all recognized all the adults in that social group. And their job was to go about um, following these animals, recording their, their social network effectively. So they recognized everybody who were recording their interactions between each other. Um, and um, it, was, it was a bit of a surprise. Effectively, what happened is they went for lunch. They took their lunch break. So they, they left the group and they went and... Um, sat to, to eat, uh, not noticing anything strange going on in the group. Um, in fact, the male who died, Bon, one of the research assistants, had done his you know 10 minute follow of that monkey uh, that morning. Um, and when they came back, the first group members they saw they noticed were acting a bit strange, a bit on edge, and they were in a an odd place uh, for in their home range, kind of on a very peripheral part of their home range. Um, and as they explored a bit further, they saw that this, this male um, was dead and that other members of the group were very much surrounding the, the dead body, um, some of which observing others acting in very aggressive ways towards the dead body. 
uh, biting it, pulling it around, dragging it, making all sorts of alarm calls also. And these were mostly the, the high-ranking males that were doing this. Right. So they had the foresight to, to whip out their phones and start recording video and also starting to make notes about who was around uh, as much data as they, they could get. So this is obviously an unexpected occurrence. Um, so it was really, um, yeah, very clever of them to do that because we managed to get enough data to really provide a kind of case study report about um, this occurrence and in particular the other animals' reactions to um, this dead body. There's lots of debate, discussion, what do non-humans know about death? Um, do they know anything at all? And one way people try and get at that question is by recording responses to, to dead group members. Um, so that they can infer as best they can some very difficult things to study, um, but can infer the best they can about what these animals may or may not know, what information they have about um, death, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, and and yeah. how did they respond to that in that case? So there was a mixture. Some animals, um, after the high-ranking animals moved off. Some other members of the group approached the body, sniffed it, um, kind of you know pulled at the fur as if they were grooming a little bit, um, inspected it, and you just put their face very close to his face. Um, before moving away, it took them many hours, I think two, two to three hours before they left the area as a group. Uh, but other members of the group, in particular those high-ranking males um, and very high-ranking female, um, yeah, as I said, we're, we're biting the body, dragging it around, still basically acting very aggressive uh, towards this individual who was already really quite dead um, at this point. Um, so it was, it was a mixture, some affiliation towards the dead body, but a lot of aggression. Um, and we performed a necropsy. We got um, vets at the University of Puerto Rico to perform a necropsy on this animal and to to tally up the number of wounds on his body that were pre-mortem versus post-mortem. And there are a huge number um, of post-mortem wounds. So these were you know, massive you know, canine holes uh, in, in an already dead animal's uh, body. It's pretty gruesome. <laughs> and uh, I mean, this particular case, is it connected in any way with other research you do on sociality? Does it tell us anything about that particular species sociality or, or not? Um, I think not particularly. It was just an interesting, it was an interesting case. It's unusual. The thing that's most unusual from a social standpoint is for there to be a fatal aggression in a, one of your members of your own group. It would not be unusual if this was a male from another social group. They're very agonistic towards each other. Groups are very agonistic towards each other. Um, it would not be necessarily unusual for a fatality to have occurred in the course of aggression between groups. Aggression within groups, it doesn't, it's interesting because it doesn't make much sense. It's not what we would predict. This is a member of your group, even if you don't have a, a social relationship with him dyadically, uh, you live in a group for a reason, presumably to avoid predation. Uh, maintaining your group uh, is to your benefit, we would assume. And so killing off one of those guys doesn't really make that much sense. 
Um, and so our interpretation of it is that this was a pathological, if you like, occurrence. It, stuff happens when we're talking about uh, evolution. It's easy to a behavior. It's easy to lose sight of the fact that what we're talking about is on average what happens, right? But there's there's always noise around that average, and it doesn't necessarily mean that there's anything wrong or maladaptive with the system. It's just well, it's not a perfect world, right? And so this is our interpretation. Is this was this was something that was an accident, perhaps. They do fight. It's a very aggressive species. Perhaps there was a fight between uh, this individual and one of the high-ranking males. Perhaps one interpretation, he did have a big lesion on his head. Perhaps he bashed his head and could no longer submit, right? So what you're supposed to do if you're a low-ranking animal um, and someone higher-ranking is attacking you, ideally, is you just you submit to them and they get the message and, and they leave you alone. They've won the fight, right? Mm -hmm. Potentially, he hit his head and he couldn't submit, um, and, and aggression just escalated from there. He wasn't, maybe he wasn't able to signal, you've won, leave me alone, uh, and things got out of hand. But we didn't see it, so we, we, can't, we can't know for sure, but that's, that fits best with um, their biology and their social structure. Um, that makes mm -hmm. the most sense. Right. So one last topic I would like to explore today. What is neuroethology? Neuroethology um, is really the merger of neuroscience, particular, but not necessarily, cognitive neuroscience and the study of behavior. Um, really championed by um, Nico Tinbergen, who won the Nobel Prize as, a, as an ethologist, um, who set out his, his four questions, and I'm sure you, a lot of your listeners, um, are familiar with. So basically the four questions that you need to answer if you would like to understand behavior, um, which are questions about you know, the, the function of that behavior, so its fitness consequences, its ontogeny with development, its evolutionary history, right? So it has evolutionary elements in it, um, and also the, the mechanisms that maintain it. Um, and here we can be talking about including uh, neural mechanisms that maintain a behavior. So it's really a holistic way of understanding behavior. As behavioral ecologists, we're often thinking a lot about purely function, right? The evolution, maybe the evolutionary history, um, when things first arose, for example. Um, and we, at least in my personal experience, um, trained as a behavioral ecologist and then went to work in a, neuro, a cognitive neuroscience lab um, and was really struck by how little time I had spent as a behavioral ecologist thinking about the brain. Right? Well, behavior comes from the brain, so it's a bit silly to not spend much time thinking about it. But there you were, that was my experience. Uh, and I, I think it's the experience of a lot of behavioral ecologists. Um, also, it's fair enough, you can only know so much and focus on so much. Neuroscience is also such a new and dynamic and rapidly growing field that I don't expect myself or anyone else who's not a neuroscientist to have huge amounts of expertise in it if it's not their field. Um, but neuroethology has those foundations of the fact that to understand behavior, we need to understand both the brain and the phenotype and its evolutionary history and its developmental ontogeny. Um, so it's really, let's bring all of this together. Let's get neuroscientists and psychologists and biologists and zoologists and the whole mixture. 
let's get all of these people um, talking to each other, asking questions at different levels of explanation um, so we can generate that kind of complete picture of, of, of the phenotypes that we're interested in. Mm -hmm. So with all that interdisciplinarity and marrying, in this case, neuroscience with ethology, can we get new insights into, insights into animal behavior? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we get insights into um, how behaviors are generated, maintained, rewarded, um, rewarded at a kind of neurochemical level, um, which is important, right? We have lots of questions about individual differences, species level differences, uh, and a lot of these differences, this is where they're really expressed, right? They have a phenotypic expression, but it really comes down to changes in the anatomy of the brain, right? changes in receptor densities of certain neurotransmitters, uh, changes in gene expression. This is where it all at a certain level, very proximate level, uh, happens. So you could argue that without understanding that, then, then you haven't fully understood, understood um, where your behavioral variation uh, comes from. Um, nor if you're potentially you know, a person interested in manipulating some of these things because there's a good treatment intervention. Um, or if you're interested in, in understanding um, certain um, mood disorders, for example, that have a real uh, social complement, right? So mm -hmm. for example, depression is very clearly associated with social isolation. Um, so understanding the proximate bases of those, whether that's neural or hormonal or what have you, um, is a very clear route to understanding the experience of those people and potentially uh, ways of, of Treatment is treatment is something that's desired. Mm -hmm. Okay, so just before we go, would you like to mention any places on the internet where people can find your work? Uh, so people can follow me on Twitter at ljnbrent. Uh, I also have a website that's really simply just laurenbrent.com. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I will be leaving links to all of that in the description box of the interview. And Dr. Brent, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Thanks for having me, Carlo. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please consider supporting it on Patreon or PayPal. All of the links are in the description box of the interview. The show is brought to you by people like you, so consider doing it. Otherwise, and if you like the interview, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. The show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters Karen Litzke, and Blanchett, Perga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Kessel, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Pauline Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingart, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Ruinacio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, Jorge Spinha, 
Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Thiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omer Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrandt, Oslo Bullet, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W. João Eira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Des Araújo, Ethan Solon, Romain Roach, Dimitri Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Ruzmani, Charlotte Bliss, Miran B, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Max Belby, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz. My producers is Arweba, Jim, Frank, Lucas, Tafinia, Kian Gilligan, Sergio Codriano, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardas France, and Nirvan Balachandran. And my executive producers, Michel Rogeski, Rosie, James Pratt, and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all.